Not a true story. But it's a great way to introduce myself to people. Um, we're going to be continuing this evening in the, in the series that we're doing on taking ground from Joshua. I'm not going to be speaking from Joshua. But um, as I was thinking about this subject, I was thinking, well, how would you measure whether you're taking ground or not? What does that look like? Most of us don't have physical giants to kill, and that's frowned upon, if you did. Um, most of us don't have physical territory to go and, and take, that's also frowned upon. Um, not unheard of, but frowned upon. So what does that look like for the Christian? What does that look like in the Christian life? So there, there are two things that I'm going to look at this evening. The one is in terms of spiritual gifting. What does it look like to make progress or to take ground in terms of spiritual gifts? And secondly, I'm going to be looking at what does it look like to take ground or make progress in terms of character development. We're going to look at um, three pieces of Scripture. I'm going to start, if you would turn with me, to the first uh, book of Timothy, chapter 4. So while you're, you're paging there, the book of Timothy is a, a, a book written, letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Timothy was a young man. Tradition has it that at the time of the writing of 1 Timothy, he was 16 or 17 and running a church, which is quite, quite a thing. And um, Timothy is, is, is part of a line of faithful people. His mother and his grandmother were, were women of faith. And Paul writes this letter to Timothy, and he writes to him about what it looks like to be in the ministry, and he encourages him. Bear in mind, as I, as I read these words, he's writing to somebody who is not out of high school in modern terms. This is what he writes. Do not neglect the gift you have, which is given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. It appears that the gift that, that was given to Timothy by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on him was teaching, gift of teaching. There were probably other gifts as well. But Paul says to him, God has given you this gift, grow it. So, so there's an idea sometimes in, in charismatic circles or in, in church circles that if you have a gift, that's it. God has given it to you. And, and, and that's the size of it. But it appears from this text that God gives us a gift to steward and we can take ground in it. The, the, the word is immerse yourself in it. So, so you know what immersion is? You go underwater. So he says, dive into teaching as if you're diving into open water. Dive into it, get inside it, make it cover you, make it, make it Make it like the air you breathe. Get hold of that gift, and don't just live with it, wrestle with it. Exercise it, practice it. Did you notice we had two really, really, really specific words this evening? That's not the first time they've given a, a specific word. That comes from years of stepping out incrementally, deeper, deeper, closer, closer, and more and more specific. So God gives us gifts by His Holy Spirit, Sometimes through the laying on of hands, sometimes because he's just kind. And, and he expects us to immerse ourselves in them and to develop them. 
There's something about the stewardship of gifts that sometimes I think that we neglect. And we steward them in community. We steward them in the context of the local church, in home groups, with friends. We step out um, in faith in the safety of community where we can grow and become more and more like Jesus. So how did, how did Timothy get on? Well, I think that there's, there's a, a clue in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes again to Timothy, and he says this, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Here's a clue. Remember in the first letter he said, through the laying on of hands of the, of the council of elders, he was clearly present. And he says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift that you received. What does that mean? Timothy had let it die down a bit. Otherwise, he wouldn't be reminding him. So, so it needed somebody who was like a father figure. I don't really like the father figure analogy, but it works here. There was someone like a father figure, someone who, who Timothy respected, somebody who Timothy looked up to, someone who Timothy drew from for spiritual input, who said, listen, bud, you know that gift? You've let it die. Fan it into flames. Not die completely, because it clearly is a live ember there, otherwise the image doesn't work. But, but, but like billows, put air on it, feel the Holy Spirit blow upon it, and let it come alive again. Fan it into flames. And then he says this, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but one of power and of love and of self-control. What caused him, we're in a small enough group, we can shout out, I'm happy to engage with you. What caused him to see the fire of his gift die down to an ember? From this text, we can see it. Any ideas? Fear, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. He let fear creep into his heart because when you exercise your gift, what happens is you get resistance and stuff happens. And sometimes you think, geez, is this, maybe I'm not cool to it. Maybe this is not for me. Maybe God should send someone else. And, and Paul says in, in, in tender tones, when I read this, I read this like I have, I have two daughters and I encourage them from time to time. I, re, I read this letter in that tone, you've got this. You've got this. So Paul says, don't, don't concern yourself with, with the fear that is assaulting your senses because you've res- received a spirit of power and love and self-control. If you have your Bibles open, I'd like you to underline power love, and self-control, because those three things are going to pop up again in a minute. One of the pitfalls of, of living in an environment, in a community, where the exercise of spiritual gifts is a, is a norm, is that we use that as an external measure of how, how well you're doing spiritually. And it's not an accurate measure at all. Jesus said that there were those who would perform miracles in his name, cast out demons, do all kinds of amazing stuff. And Jesus said, of those people I'm going to say to you, I never knew you'd get away from me. So we can exercise spiritual gifts and not be known by Jesus, not 
not live in an energetic, vital, real relationship with Jesus. The exercise of spiritual gifts is not a measure of our spiritual health. It's a measure of our faith. That's it. So, what does that mean then? It means this. The state of your heart, rather, let me rephrase that. The extent to which you can exercise a spiritual gift has absolutely no impact on your heart. But the state of your heart has a profound impact on the way that you exercise your spiritual gift. So that's why I'm going to, I'm going to look at it in, in more detail. The second aspect, character. We looked at spiritual gifts and taking ground in spiritual gifts. Just to remind us, it, it requires immersion. It requires fanning it into flames. It requires working in a community that is safe, that is going to encourage you to live it out and to practice it until it grows and develops. Right, spiritual gifts aside, let's look at character. I'd like you to look, please, at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Peter, um, Peter's like a boomerang. I keep on speaking about this guy. I just can't get away from him. He writes this in, in 2 Peter, chapter 1. His divine power, his dynamis, which is the word from which we get dynamite, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life, that's supernatural life, Zoe, and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There's a lot of words there. Let me summarize the heart of it. The heart of it is this. God's power has given us everything we need to know him and to experience divine life while we're here. That's the heart of it. So, so in our circles, we would say, God has given you everything you need. You don't have to do anything. You've got it. You agree with me? Peter says this. Next. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. So, so Peter says, God has given everything you need. Now supplement it. So it, it looks like we need more than what God has given us. In fact, Peter goes on to specify seven things that you have to add to everything that he's given that we need. So surely you would say, well, if God has given us everything we need, why would we need to add anything to it? That makes no sense. Surely if God has given us the grace to know him, to experience him, to live a life full of godliness, why would we need to add anything to that? Well, let's see what the text says. He says this. For this very reason, for the very reason that God has given you everything you need, supernaturally, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. 
You pick up the three things that he spoke of, uh, that uh, Paul was writing of, power, love, and self-control. They're in these seven. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I'm going to go through each of those virtues, but in summary, what this text means is this. God has given us everything that we need, supernaturally, to know him and to experience the divine life, not only in the eternity, but now. Because God has given us everything we need, we need to make every effort to add to our faith seven things. We're going to look at what that looks like. I don't believe, um, and I'm drawing this from a guy called Mark Buchanan, who is my absolute favorite author. He says that, that these seven virtues are not, are not to be understood in linear form. So you don't take one and you get that right, and then you take the next one and you get the next one right, and then you take the next one and you get that right. These all happen simultaneously, but I think they're in order of, of, of importance. And we'll see that as it, comes, as it comes along. Have you ever seen those guys in the gym who skip leg day? You know what I'm talking about? Those guys have got these huge chests, big arms, skinny legs. I don't have skinny legs, buddy. I've got proper legs. But you get those guys. You get those guys who, who look like if you just give them a push, they're going to fall over because they're top heavy. So, so that, that's what happens when you train one thing and you don't give attention to everything else. You need to train them in order. You're going to have leg day, back day, shoulders, triceps, all of that stuff. You need to do that. And you can't train them all at the same time. But you need to train them all consistently. And that's what, that's what, Paul is say, that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, when you, when you exercise here, when you do that, you've, you've, got to, you've got to add these things together, but not, not complete one. Do it all consistently. Yeah. Okay. So the question is, are those seven virtues uh, things that God gives us, but that we have to contend for because uh, the flesh and the world, if I've understood you correctly, resists that? The answer is yes. All of those things are supernaturally given. But, but what's interesting about it is we, we receive everything we need supernaturally to live lives um, from, the, from the first text that I looked at, that we require and to know him. But we've got to supplement our faith with these things. So it's, it's like you go, you go and you grab hold of it. You take hold of it and make it your own. So it's available to us, but we've got to contend for it, as you say. That's a great question. Thank you. So the very first is faith. I think, I think it's, it's important that the very first virtue is faith. You know who Ray Charles is? You know who I'm talking about. Ray Charles is a famous uh, gospel and R&B musician. He died a couple of years ago. He, he was born with sight. He could see. And around the age of four or five, he, he contracted glaucoma. And by the age of seven, he was completely blind. And there's a biography of him that records the moment his mom knew that he could no longer see. It describes how he was sitting on, a, uh, on the, the floor of their shack. It's a 
a sharecropper's home, dirt poor, terribly poor. His, his four-year-old brother had drowned in a wash tub. They, they had a tragic, he had a tragic backstory. And, and his mother watched him just raging in absolute frustration because he couldn't see. And she was trying to figure out what's wrong with this kid. And she, she was about to go to him to pick him up, and then she, something in her told her to stop. So she stopped and she watched. And slowly he calmed himself, and, and she, she watched him cock his head and listen, and listen to the sounds outside, and listen to the sound of a locust walking along the floor next to him. And he picked up the locust, and he put it in his hand, and, and held it, not being able to see a thing. And he said, I, I can hear it, and I can hear you too, Mom. And Ray Charles said of his disability, his inability to see, he said, I hear like you see. That's what faith is. Faith is the ability to engage with the unseen as if you could see it. That's what faith is. So, so Peter says, to your faith, your ability to see the things unseen as if you could see them, add virtue. The starting block is faith. What do you do with it? You add virtue. Virtue is goodness. Arite. I hope, I hope I've said that right. Goodness. Okay. We stand in the righteousness of Christ, yes? We are completely justified because of Jesus. So how do we add goodness to that? Does that make sense? Peter says, add to your faith goodness. In other words, make every effort to be transformed into the likeness of Christ so that you look, sound, and smell like him. Another way of, of, of reading that would be to read, instead of virtue or goodness, godness. Start sounding like Jesus. Start, start consciously looking at the world and saying, how can I represent God well? Do that. Add to your faith, goodness. There's no ways you can do that without faith. Because we need to understand who we serve and how he empowers us, because otherwise we cannot represent him well. That's why faith is the bedrock for this. And virtue with knowledge. That's an interesting word. You may say to me, doesn't knowledge puff up? Isn't knowledge spoken of in the New Testament in negative terms? Well, sometimes, depends on the context. You'll remember the first verse that we looked at, chapter, uh, verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The word in the first section is epinosis. I hope I pronounced that correctly. It means complete knowledge, supernatural knowledge of God. Um, there's a world of difference between knowing what someone is like and knowing them. Kathy knows me better than any of you. But there's still stuff that she's discovering about me all the time. 
one day we were, we were in the supermarket and I said, oh, copper ham, my absolute favorite. He said, really, I didn't know that. Like, so, so we know each other really well. We've been married for 24 years. Um, been together for longer than that. But there's stuff that she's, no, she's discovering about me. That, that's what it's like with God. So, so he says, God has given us access to complete knowledge of him, therefore work on getting to know him more. On the constant journey of discovery of what he is like. Add to knowledge, Gnosis, add to knowledge, self-control. Have you ever met or spent time with somebody who has a very short fuse? Gets angry quickly. What's that like? Fun? No, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. What about somebody who just can't stop eating? You ever been that guy? The Bible says, in Proverbs, it says, if you're, if you're a man given to appetite, put a knife to your throat. Because and, and I'm going to roughly translate that, it's, it's, it means do something to control yourself. Exercise self-control. Um, self-control is a big deal. And it's a big deal because in 2 Timothy it says that we've been given not a spirit again of bondage to fear, but one of power and love and self-control. We are supernaturally empowered to take control of our appetites. And that includes anger. Because anger is, is an appetite in some respects. It's a secondary emotion. The, the one thing about anger is it's re- it feels so good when you're in it. When, when the red mist descends and you are raging, there's actually something that's quite lacquer about that. It's terribly destructive, really bad for you, terrible for your relationships, but it feels good, very dangerous. Um, I, I read once a beautiful story. It said... Of all sins, anger is the most delicious. We roll around our tongues the words that we're going to inflict on those who are the object of our anger. We taste what it would feel like to say those words. We, 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 we find ourselves consumed with it. And when we wake up, the skeleton at the banquet is you. Because we consume ourselves in our anger. So, self-control. Steadfastness. Steadfastness. The Christian walk, if I can use that term loosely, is not a 100-meter sprint. It's an ultramarathon. The difference between an ultramarathon and a 100-meter sprint is a 100-meter sprint starts and ends very quickly. It takes a great deal of energy and a burst and then it's done, and you can go home and watch TV. Ultramarathon takes a lot of preparation, a lot of time, and it actually needs the help of others. If you don't have seconds, you've got a problem. It's a long, long race. It starts when you're born again, and it ends when you breathe your last. That's how long the race is. It requires a degree of steadfastness. It requires a degree of consistency. It requires that thing that we resist the most, discipline. It requires setting our face like flint to Jesus and pursuing him with everything. Not in a sprint, but in a steady, every day, every day, every day. 
That's a steadfastness, godliness. Look like Jesus. And godliness, brotherly affection, Philadelphia. There's a very interesting thing that happens here. Check this out. It says, to brotherly affection with love, agape. You remember the scene, I think I've preached on this here. You remember the scene when, when Jesus is risen from the dead and he has a breakfast with his disciples on the, the lake shore. And he turns to Peter, the author of this text, and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know, Lord, just feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know I do, Lord. Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. In every instance, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And he says, yes, Lord. I, uh, yeah, that. Phileo you. Do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me enough to die? Do you love me to do what isn't convenient to you, but is what I need? Jesus asks him. He responds, you know that I have great affection for you, Jesus. See, affection alone is not enough. Affection's not enough. Jesus says, what's, what's the greatest commandment? Come. Love your Lord, your God, with everything, and... Sorry? It is a trick question. You're quite right. What's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Those are the two great commandments. Except before Jesus ascended, he said this. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love people? He died. He took his glory and he laid it down. And he suffered the wrongful death of a murderer. Love one another like that. So when, Jesus, when Peter says, add to brotherly love, brotherly affection, add to that, agape, saying love one another like Jesus does. Oh. So it starts with faith, goes through all of these, and reaches its, its, its high point with agape. Love like God. So yes, that's absolutely something we have to pursue supernaturally because in ourselves we cannot do that. It's impossible. Then he says this, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so he uses the word and, it's in conjunction, says if these things are yours, that's not enough, if these things are yours and are increasing, They will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have these seven virtues, and they're not shrinking, they're growing, if you're gaining ground in them, they will keep you from being unfruitful in the epinosis, in the overwhelming full knowledge of Jesus, in the experiential knowledge of Jesus, in the intimate knowledge of Jesus, in the oneness knowledge of Jesus. We need to have these seven virtues, not only possess them, but have them ever, ever increasing by the Holy Spirit, because we certainly can't do it by ourselves, so that we will not be ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then goes on to say, for whoever lacks these qualities 
is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So, God has given us everything that we need for life in, in, in God, of godliness, a divine life, because that's what happens when we're cleansed from our sins. If we don't grow these qualities, we revert to tap, and it's as if we're not saved. It's not that we lose our salvation, I'm not saying that, but it means from the, from the perspective of fruitfulness and effectiveness, we become as effective or ineffective as if we didn't know him at all. That's hectic. That's what it says. And I was, I was struggling with this. I was reading this and I was thinking, surely not, Jesus. Surely not. Surely, surely there are going to be times where we're not increasing in our knowledge of you. Surely there are going to be times where actually we're struggling. And, and certainly that is so. There are times where, where, where actually we're just going through a hard time and we need God to intervene and, and we, need, we need grace and all of those things are true. And we need one another. Because let me tell you, you cannot do this alone. There's absolutely no way. We've got to do it in community. But, but the heart of it is, if we're going to take ground the way we, we read about in, in Joshua, if we're going to as a community advance the kingdom, if we're going to be the receptacle and the vehicle for God's advancing kingdom on this earth, if we're going to see revival break out among us, this has got to be a priority. It has to be. And we're personally accountable for it. And we're accountable for one another because we each need each other to grow on this journey. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to say that uh, as I was reading these virtues, I was blushing. There were certainly elements of it that, that I've got to say are well, just black holes for me. But God is kind and God is gracious and God is able to help me with it. And so are you. Because we need each other. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given us all that we need. Thank you that you supernaturally provide each of these virtues to us by your grace and your kindness. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us the grace to grow in them, not in our strength, Lord, but in yours. Not in our ability, but in yours. Not in our sweat of the brow, but, but, but because you are kind and gracious and good. Father, we want to set our hearts towards you we want to find ourselves, Lord, in, in earnest pursuit of you. We want to go from mere knowledge to, to overarching intimate knowledge of you in ever-increasing measure. That we would become transformed into your likeness as we, as we spend time with you face to face, experiencing your glory and reflecting it back to you. Won't you help us? Won't you help us, God, in our weakness, in our stuttering and failing, in our, in our backwardness and weakness? Your word says, Lord, that your strength is perfected in our weakness. Won't you help us, God? We need you, and we want to see your kingdom advance, Lord, in us. 
not only in our gifts, Lord, but also in our characters. We want to be transformed to look more and more like you, so that the world out there is a hope because we represent you well. In Jesus' name.